Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood. And with me this evening is my good friend and co-host. Chad Metz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. So Chad, Disney Plus Day is almost upon us, where our corporate overlords at Disney decide to besiege us with free entertainment on our Disney Plus accounts. Um, your thoughts, sir, on the Book of Fett trailer today, which you very aptly pointed out has more action than the character of Bubba Fett has ever seen. And two, um, just the overall scope of the Disney Plus Day and all of the deluge of things they're prepared to drop on us on November the 12th. Okay, so uh, for the Book of uh, the Book of Boba or the Book of Fett, I remember I don't remember which one it is. Uh, I I must first say that it is the most that he's ever, that trailer is the most he's ever done in strictly in the movies. I'm not talking about the cartoons because I haven't seen the cartoons. Don't jump on me for that. I, I hear you Star Wars fans. I hear those are good. But what made Boba Fett the legend and like the most popular character all stems from his appearances in two movies. Uh, I think it's further expounded upon in books that don't count anymore but so two movies are what built the legend of Boba Fett and again this trailer this what not even two minute trailer is more than he did in any of those movies combined just want to point it out there but uh it's it's that was not what I expected I it seemed like Boba seems more uh diplomatic in this i knew it would be about you know the power of most like the the power vacuum of most isley job of the hut was a gangster boba is taking over his spot but he seems more diplomatic in the trailers uh i'm curious to see if that translate over translates over to um the actual show and when i say diplomatic i mean it seems like he's more willing to talk these things out instead of just shooting fools, which is, I think, kind of what we expected him to be. But it seems like we're going to get a whole lot of action and shooting fools anyway. I just don't know if he's going to be like the the instigator of it, as opposed to like retaliation. So uh, it's it, it did enough to catch my attention. As far as everything else, I've lost track of everything that's coming. I know for sure Chang-Chi is coming, but I know it, there, it's a bunch of stuff and I keep seeing the commercials for it. So Disney is telling us, get ready. We're giving you all this stuff. And I think, and it's, it's, it's a range of stuff. So it's not just Marvel. It's like, you know, the whole Disney gamut, uh, which is smart. You know, they, they marketed as this day. This is the stuff we're going to give you. We're going to beat you over the head with it. And, even if you are like me right now, only know one thing for sure that's coming out that day, you'll know there's going to be a ton more by the time November 12th gets here. The fact that I know what day it is tells you how their marketing is. If you don't know anything else, you know the day that we're doing this. So uh, it's Disney. They, they know what they're doing, at least right now. It's in honor of the second anniversary, which includes broad, uh, across brand appeal, um, in an appreciation of all the subscribers. Here are some of the things that will be available. Uh, the streaming premiere of Marvel Studios Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Jungle Cruise will finally be available to all subscribers. Um, Home Sweet Home Alone, the reimagining of the popular holiday holiday franchise um very british now I'm, comes, I'm, I'm, comes out on the on on disney plus day i want to i want to bookmark that to, to come back a little bit later but keep going um an all-new series of shorts from walt disney animation studios called olaf presents which sees frozen's beloved snowman retelling several classic disney tales as only he can um uh, the debut, the debut of fun, fan favorite shorts from Walt Disney Animation Studios, including Frozen Forever, 
Oscar-winning shorts, Best in Paperman, Oscar-nominated Mickey Mouse, an Oscar-nominated Mickey Mouse short, uh, Get a Horse, and more. An animated short film from Pixar featuring characters from Luca. A new short film from The Simpsons that pays tribute to Disney Plus's marquee brands. The first five episodes from season two of The World According to Jeff Goldblum. A special, cel cel uh, a special celebrating the origins and legacy of Star Wars legendary bounty hunter Boba Fett. Gee, I wonder why that could be. A special <laughs> celebrating the Marvel Cinematic Universe on Disney Plus with an exciting look towards the future. Uh, Dope Stick, an original series starring Michael Keaton, which will be released in international <laughs> markets as part of the Star General Entertainment offering. And subscribers to the service will be entertained with an inaugural Disney Plus Day fan celebration on Disney Plus, which will include breaking news, first looks, new trailers, exclusive clips, and appearances from Disney Plus's creators and stars. All of this and more can be yours if the price is right. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole lot of stuff. Uh, I... So what stuck out to me, I mean, what stuck out to me was the actually the last thing, the what seems to be like their um their kind of sizzle reel, like the kind of thing you would show in a in a um Comic-Con or whatever kind of setting, teases of all the things that are to come. The uh, Disney you, Plus Day fan celebration on Disney Plus. Yeah. Which so, will include breaking news, first looks, new trailers, exclusive clips and appearances from Disney Plus's creators and stars. So to me, that says, like for, for our purposes, that means you're probably going to get uh, your first official look at Miss Marvel, uh, something from Moon Knight, uh, stuff from from uh at least uh what's his name from rogue one uh andar yeah him and stuff from obi-wan which would probably include obi-wan and maybe uh ahsoka i don't know the, i know obi-wan was shooting i don't know if ahsoka was but more than likely you're going to get hayden christensen as darth vader in some form or fashion during all of that so that sticks out to me first um i'm gonna let you go and then i'm gonna go back to this home alone thing um i am not i do not have a small child in my home or a child period um except for animals um so i am not in vastly familiar with the frozen hierarchy um i assume olaf is the snowman and he tells funny stories is that the gist of the character because i mean that was the gist that was should have been the gist of iago you know these things happen wait where's so my, you've, where's you've my never seen e frozen i have not so so where's my <laughs> iago so where's my iago disney plus series with uh with with my boy um uh gilbert godfrey gilbert godfrey yeah where, where's that please so those are two different things uh iago olaf is more i can't say actually endearing because to some adults he can be grating but he is like a feature character in this and and from the first one on like they, he's become more and more of a focal point uh not taking over the sisters but if they're going to spin stuff off like they have it's always going to focus on olaf so he is uh i don't know what what's a good comp to olaf Everything I can think of is like uh, the animals in the Disney movies that they have like as pets, that, but they don't really talk. Like Miko. He's, he's yeah, he's kind of like that, except he talks and sings a lot. Uh, so again, he can be grading to some of those. He he's I'm fine with Olaf. It it doesn't matter. But it's um it's what's his name from Book of Mormon, and he was in Beauty and the Beast, and I'm blanking on the name, and I'm looking in his face. People thought he would be the penguin for a while. What's that? Josh Gad? That's him. That's that's who Olaf is. So there's your singing and dancing. Uh, so 
from what I understand from this cartoon, it's just Olaf telling the stories of old Disney cartoons in his Olaf way. So it's going to be a bunch of shenanigans with the little snowman. Kids will like it. Uh, I don't know if mine will. She's, it's funny from the first one till now. Uh, I don't know if she's like aged out of, I wouldn't say she's aged out of it completely, but uh, her enthusiasm is probably way down. If this would have came out when the first one came out, when she was like four, I would never see the end of it. Now, she might watch it in the room and I'll never see it myself. Progress, Chad. I'm not knocking it. Yes, yes. So what else caught your eye on the uh, that Disney Plus Day lineup? I, before I get on hold on, uh, honestly, it was the, the animation stuff. Like every time I hear shorts, that catches my attention. I heard there's a new Mickey Mouse short. Well, no, I, the Mickey Mouse short you mentioned um, was Get a Horse, which goes back to Frozen. It was the short they played in front of Frozen. Um, and it's it's a really good one. And I'm actually surprised that it's not on Disney Plus now. Uh, I thought it was, but I haven't looked in a long time. But uh, I do like that short. It's, it's the short that mixes uh, an old black and white 2D animation with computer animation. And the actual voice of Mickey Mouse in that short is the original voice of Mickey Mouse, which is Walt Disney himself. How did they do it? A bunch of, you know, movie magic shenanigans, but it is um, Walt Disney doing the voice. And it's a fun short. So if you haven't seen it and you got time, You've got seven minutes on November 12th. Just go watch Get a Horse. Indeed. And your thoughts on a very British Home Alone. All right. So I'm normally the guy that's like, if somebody's remaking a movie, I'm like, go ahead, remake it. It's for a new audience. They, the new audience has probably never seen the original. This can introduce them to the original. It doesn't have to be for you, but it can serve that purpose. You don't, you shouldn't knock remakes. However, watching this trailer, it's okay. First, the thing with Home Alone is while the movies that they're remade for a new generation, they might show up every now and then. And you get to watch them, but Home Alone has been in rotation every Christmas since it came out. Everyone knows Home Alone. I know I use my daughter as a gauge, and she's normally not a good one because of me, and I throw things off, but all the people her age have seen Home Alone because it's always been on TV. Uh, it Much like uh, freaking Christmas Story got played all the time, and people know it, Home Alone is not that incessant, but everyone knows it. So with that being the case, it kind of takes away that, reintrodu- that reintroduction to a new crowd. But you can still do it if you're doing something different. However, this is the exact same thing. Like, that trailer just tells the exact same story. There's nothing new here. So in that light, like, why even do it? If you're not going to... If you know it's seen all the time, it's seen every year, why not do something new instead of doing the exact same thing? And that's my issue with this movie, and that's why I don't think people are going to like it at all. People already don't like the idea of remakes, even though if you give them a good one, they kind of get over it. But for this one, I think this is about to crash and burn. And luckily, it's on a streaming services, a streaming service, so we'll never know the true numbers, and they can hide. I said at one point in time that we could literally do an entire um, podcast just about the films of John Hughes. And, and Home Alone was a John Hughes film. And I'm just, I, I want to read through this list that starts uh, in 1983 and goes all the way up to 2009 uh, of, of films. And just the sheer volume of, of output, but also the quality of the output and the number of these films that have not been remade like not been touched, okay? So we're starting in 1983 with Mr. Mom and uh, Mr. Mom and National Lampoon's Vacation, Savage Lands. That's all 1983. 
right, right off the bat, National Lampoon's Vacation and Mr. Mom in the same year. I didn't realize Mr. Mom was his. Yeah. And then uh, 16 Candles, Breakfast, uh, 16 Candles in 84, Breakfast Club in 85, uh, European Vacation in 85, Weird Science in 85, Pretty in Pink in 86, Ferris Bueller in 86, Some Kind of Wonderful in 87, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in 87, She's Having a Baby, 88, Great Outdoors, 1988, uh, Uncle Buck, 19, 1989. Christmas Vacation, 1989. Home Alone, 1990. Career Opportunities, 1991. Dutch, 1991. Curly Sue, 1991. Uh, Beethoven, 1992. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, 1992. Uh, Dennis the Menace, 1993. Beethoven 2nd, 1993. Baby's Day Out, 1994. Barrack on 34th Street, 1994. 101 Dalmatians, 1996. Flubber, 1997. Home Alone 3, 1997. Reach, uh, uh, Reach the Rock, 1998. Um, Just Visiting, 2001. Uh, oh, the uh, Made in Manhattan, 2002. Uh, Drillbit Taylor, 2008. Um, and that is, of course, the last film before he was, uh, before he died of his heart attack. But yeah, just think about that list that I just read off there. The number of hit generational films in year after year. And the number of those films that have not been remade or retouched or changed. The only one other than, um, the only one other than uh, Home Alone that I can think of that has been remade is Ben Vacation, which was redone in 2015 with Chris Helmsworth and Ed Harris and uh, Ed Holmes. And, uh, you know, some people liked, some people didn't. My take on that movie was always that if you were going to do a, um, if you were going to do a vacation movie now, and vacation had never actually been a thing, that's what a vacation movie would be. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the only one of his films. Think about how prolific a, a director, 58 writing credits and the dude, you know, has only had one of his films touched. You know, it's, that is impressive. It also makes me think, I don't know. I kind of want to go through everybody's list now. Uh, we're not doing it now, but of movies that have been done by these kind of, uh, creators and, how many of them have been remade, but yeah, that, that longer list and the way people talk about his movies, you figure it like there'd be more than just the one. Uh, well now, but now we're going on two. Yeah. But like compare that to something like Spielberg who lent out his name to anybody who would come to him with a pitch and an idea in the nineties and early two thousands. Like Spielberg himself jokes about the, the number of things that he's a producer on. You know, this is your reminder to see Steven Spielberg as a producer on all of the Bruckheimer, uh, not the Bruckheimer, all the Bay Transformer films. Yep. Like, you know, it, it's just compare that with Hughes, whose family has been very protective of his legacy. Drillbit Taylor was the last movie he wrote. Um, he, and he even did that under a pseudonym. And, you know, they've been very protective of him and of his legacy and uh, the stars that were, you know, Someone like Molly Ringwald, whose entire career was made by him in that in those roles, have been very protective of that legacy. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating that the only the only the next one that's going to get exploited is the one that you know is again one set premise, which is why the third one didn't work when he tried it again with a small child and in you know in that whole deal. To me, it still goes back to the uh, the fact that. Home Alone is like ubiquitous with Christmas. Everybody, it comes on TV all the time. Both of them are synonymous with Christmas, one and two. Yeah, yeah, because you, your mileage may vary. Some people, uh, typically younger than me, like two, but more than one. But either way, if you if you know two, then you know one, and you understand the story of one. And it, it goes, I mean, kid, 
even kids now growing up that don't watch much TV, I know they know what those movies are. So I don't know who this movie is for. It's it's not for a new audience because the new audience knows the old one. If you felt that you wanted to use the name to get it be a gateway, you did nothing new. So you're already you're already going to be compared to the first one anyway. But now it's like people will be doing shot for shots comparisons and be like, yeah, this this is this sucks compared to the old one. This sucks compared to the old one. It's like it, you put your you're putting the movie in a no win situation. So I don't understand why you do it that way. It is literally the British version. the The setting is the only thing that appears to be different. And I don't are they are they actually in Britain or is the family like British but moved to America and then they're going somewhere else for Christmas? I'm I'm unsure at this point. Yeah. The the only reason I I think is that way is because. Uh, um, the two robbers are clearly not British, but that doesn't mean that they can't be overseas, but we don't know. Indeed, and it's not like the parents in these movies have ever been portrayed as super responsible individuals anyway. <laughs> oh uh, No, no, there's no movie. They are. I mean, like, at least in theory, it kind of works because you have like eight or ten kids. And this thing also happens in the Bible where like, Mary and Joseph are like riding out into the desert. Then they turn around there. Wait, wait, where's that other kid? And they have to turn around and go back to the temple. Like it, it's, I kind of get that, you know, cheaper by the dozen type deal. But like, if you only got the two kids and only half of your two kids is there, there might be a problem there. Yeah. That, that, it, yep. That sums it all up. I much, I much prefer the idea of a, of redoing it as a grown-up, uh, a, a grown-up version with Macaulay Culkin being trapped in the house and outwit an elderly Joe Pesci. <laughs> I mean, somebody I, I've seen ideas where that's brought up. I mean, at least that's something different. But they wanted to do this kid thing again. It's Disney. Why not? I mean, and this is really the one of the first fruits of. The forbidden tree that fell from the fox deal so this is true yeah that's right all right chad so talk to me about um what you are looking forward to with the eternals and the possible trailer that you might get for a certain web slinging superhero attached to that movie well, with Eternals, I, I've really stayed away from anything about it. I know uh, reviews are out. Reviews are mixed, to say the least. So, yeah, 58 or 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, last I saw. Yeah, so I'm looking to see um, wh- like what, what is this movie trying to achieve? Uh, a lot of people will say this is the like the first Marvel movie with a actual quote unquote auteur at the at the helm with the uh, Academy Award winning Chloe Zhao as the director. Um, just looking at it, uh, you can tell from the trailers it looks a little different. Uh, she brought her, all of her sensibilities to it, and apparently this movie makes uh, makes a big swing in terms of what it's doing in the Marvel universe. So I want to see, I just want to see what that swing is and does it connect with me? Uh, and if even if it connects with me, is it, does it connect with me to a point that I think the larger audience will be connected to it or not? That, that's really what I'm looking forward, forward to. Uh, uh, and and to see if it really if it if it offers something quote unquote different that a lot of people that have complaints about the Marvel universe um it, this offers them something that they would consider different and if so why did it why did it work or not work in terms of being a Marvel movie 
that's what I'm that's my overall thoughts going into Eternals. As far as that trailer, I mean I one, I still don't know if we're actually gonna get it. Um I I mean I've heard I've seen all the rumors like everybody else about things that are are or or may not be in the trailer. Uh if what I've heard is, I would hope the things I've heard are not true because it involves the uh, the the as yet to be confirmed other Spider-Man showing up in the trailer. And even though this is the worst kept secret, this is the equivalent of uh, AEW when they brought back CM Punk. I still would. I think it would. I think it plays much better for everyone involved, at least for the first weekend, if they. If they they know that they're in it, but they don't see them, because then that still offers that whole that whole thing of uh, doubt. It's still a doubt that they're going to be in it. Much like with much like with AEW, I was watching that night, and I knew I knew he was going to show up. Everybody knew he was going to show up, but still, when the show started, it's like, is he really going to show up? And then he showed up, and that made it that much better. And I think this will be the same kind of thing with those Spider-Man if you wait until you see the movie and don't throw it away in this marketing. A week after the movie comes out, put them in commercials. Fine. If you didn't, if you wanted to be surprised, you should have went the first weekend. But that might put some people over the top to go subsequent weekends. But right now, don't show them. And I don't know if a certain company has the uh the gumption to not show them i think they're ready to be like here here they're here come see the movie i hope i'm wrong i hope that they don't do that for the trailer i am really looking forward to a fun intergalactic space adventure with a family theme with a visual a director who has a very uh distinct visual style in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm really looking forward to not one, not two, but three prominent female directors on that set. I'm looking forward to seeing Selma Hayek and and, uh, and uh, Angelina Jolie on the big screen in a Marvel movie. Most of all, I'm just going to have fun, man. Like this is, this, this to me is very much similar to the experience of walking almost blindly into Iron Man in 08. It's like, yeah, he seems cool. Looks like he's having fun. I'm gonna go try it out. Like I like the movie that is being sold to me in this case. I like, you know, the whole family protectionist adventure movie with a lot of comedy. You know, because making fun of family dynamics is always fun. I mean, I've been on board with this movie since they announced it at Comic Con 2019. Fun fact: it was the very first movie they announced at Comic Con 2019. Um, I love this cast. Um, I like what's being sold to me. The concern that I have is I don't want this movie and, and it's something that I've heard a lot of and talk people just broadly speaking talking about this movie is the movie getting tied down and weighted down in exposition issues. Mainly they have put front and center in all the trailers the issue about why didn't you fight Thanos with the Avengers? I don't want that to become the overarching, like, big freaking focus of the of the story as well. Having to explain every little nook and cranny of where these people have been and why they haven't come out of hiding and all the things. Um, I like the simplest explanation that you've given where it's like, we were just told not to. Now you're going to have to put a little bit more behind that because people are going to be like, that doesn't really work. Um, and I think they will, but I don't want it to be the overall deriding factor of of the film i'm intrigued also by the fact that we're gonna get a love scene in a pg-13 movie in a marvel movie produced by disney i'm intrigued by the way they depict a openly gay couple although again disney had um disney allowed modern family to run on uh abc for so many years with a openly gay couple with children um so you know that that's going to be interesting to me uh, so yeah, I'm just kind of along for the ride on this one. I'm, I don't have strong opinions either way. I think it'll be a good expansion of the uh, galactic side of the universe, and we'll go from there. 
there's so much that they can do with the galactic stuff in this movie um, that can go and go either way. And I don't even like I I actually have no good ideas of what they can do. But no I just what, really want you to explain to me what it, what a emergence is. Because that's what I've heard from from Selma Hayek over and over and over again for five freaking months now. That the peop- that the Avengers snapping everybody back into existence created enough energy for the emergence. So just tell me what the damn emergence is, and I'll be good. This is where my uh, my Marvel blind spot is. I cosmic and magic. I don't really handle those well, and I have no idea what anything in this movie is going to be like. Nothing. Uh, this is like even even with Guardians, I knew a little bit about them. I knew the characters' names and kind of like what they were. This I know nothing, absolutely nothing. So I'm going in there just like all of y'all. I got nothing on any of this. I'm just on the ride, man. I'm on the ride, and I'm looking forward to seeing the Chloe Zhao in natural light and all the things. Um, as far as you, as the other part of that, the Spider-Man trailer, I agree with you. Don't show them. Um, but I wanted that to kind of lean into a broader conversation that I wanted us to have about my Twitter rant on Kevin Feige. Um, I'm in the middle of, of reading the book, but I've read that man's words for t- 12, 13 years now. I've studied the way that man speaks and the kind of rhetoric he uses and the word choices that he establishes. So when he goes out and he uses he uses his interview time to kind of stress that people need to enjoy the movie that we're giving them and not judge it against the film that is in their heads um, and is trying to plead for reasonable expectations, I think that should be a clarion call to us as viewers to to kind of dial it back, but also just be aware that they might be throwing us a different curveball. Um, the way that I explained it on Twitter is think about the outrage that occurred when Quicksilver showed up in WandaVision and it was played by Evan Peters and everybody went ape crap trying to figure out the different angles and, oh, this is going to involve the X-Men and this is going to bring in the multiverse and this, that, the other thing. And then he was just, you know, a dick joke. (laughs) And, you know, everybody was pissed off and upset about that because they had spent six weeks along with the astrophysicist thing trying to figure out who this thing or what this thing was and they had been concocting fantasy plots in their head of who it could be and then when the answer was presented to it and given to them it was disappointing because it was not anything close to the thing that they had built up in their mind and all we've heard for a year and a half now has been about oh toby mcguire oh andrew garfield the multiverse uh and that has just simply been exacerbated by the director and the actor making it worse by the director calling it Spider-Man Endgame, and by the actor basically depicting a scene where the other two Spider-Man and him, uh, along with Doctor Strange, sit at a table and have a conversation about what it means to be a superhero. Like, they're not helping. So, like, imagine the disappointment you're going to feel as a Spider-Man fan if after four and a half, after a, a, a year and a half, of gearing up your in your head this massive third act battle of the Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six. And then all you get is like 10 minutes of Garfield and, and McGuire on screen together with Holland and five of that is in the second, third act. Imagine how pissed off you're going to be. And that's what Feige is trying to get you to, to back down on. Just like we have a plan. We have an idea. We know what we're doing. But just dial down the expectations because the film we're going to give you is something different from what you have in your head and be open to that. And I, I just feel like so many corners of the internet already are just like, 
going to throw pitchforks and torches off that. This is where I, I'm a bit different. Because, well, a bit different from the general audience because uh, just, just the fact of having those three together and then having those villains come together, uh, that's enough for me. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have this grand finale laid out in my head. I'm willing to go wherever they're going to take me with this. Uh, if they're, if those other two are only in it for 10 minutes, I think the movie is better for it. Uh, well, I, I would think they made the best choice for the movie because it has to be, um, this is Tom Holland, Spider-Man. This needs to be his story. He needs to be the focus of it. But if they're in it for, for longer, I'll be good with that too. They've made, I'm good with whatever choices they make if they think it, if they think it's fitting the story and it that's how it comes across in the movie. Uh, you can only do so much for what people expect. Why, yes, uh, hearing uh, John Watts say it's Spider-Man Endgame might amplify people's expectations. But again, if it's to all the three movie Spider-Man in a, in a, in a movie, I think I think those statements are justified. However, you probably still shouldn't make them because we know we can't control what people think about uh, what your movies until they see it. And you have the, you know what you're talking about. They don't. And imaginations build up a whole bunch of stuff. And that could be good or it could be to your detriment. The Holland stuff, the Holland quote to me was more damaging. Because it was blatantly obvious, obvious what he was talking about. Like, there's no other way you can really interpret those comments other than I shot a scene with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, and we were all sitting around the table. And it, then I got to see it on film, and I was like, holy crap, that actually happened. Like, you can't take his comments any other way. And when you throw in the in-game reference by John Watts, Endgame is known for the money shots. It's known for the payoffs to things you'd laid the foundation for across 20 movies. Like, that's what Endgame is known for. He's essentially telling you there are going to be those kind of shots in this movie. And that's probably going to mean, you know, the Spider-Men together swinging into action. Um, and I just don't think that the, the thing that'll always, the picture perfect example of this for my, for me, for the rest of my life will be Rikishi. Who ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin that night in Detroit at Survivor Series 1999? Who took, took Stone Cold out of action? And we go through this whole drawn out process and fan theorizing and the birth of the internet and everybody concocting a theory and storyline wise, them throwing different people at you, like it looked very obvious that they were pointing the direction of Triple H to be the guy. It was the most natural way for that story to go. And then they give us the answer. And the answer is a guy who wasn't under contract and didn't make his debut in WWE until a month later. <laughs> and it's like, now we have to concoct a reason why this dude did what he did. And we have to make it kind of believable. And it's like, that's always the perfect picture-perfect example to me of us fantasy booking the storyline. And then when the answer is given to us, it's like a complete deflating, completely deflating moment because it wasn't anything close to this grand reveal that we had all pictured it to be. And I just don't want people walking into this movie and then walking out pissed off because they got, you know, two shots out of an entire movie with the thing that they want. This is your reminder, Chad. He did it for The Rock. <laughs> I, I know. I, I well, that was his, that was his excuse. Because uh, I remember The Rock was like, "No," because at that time The Rock was a face, so there was no reason for him to do it. I vaguely remember. I, I, I remember this. I remember being dumb. But it was extremely dumb because Rikishi was not under contract and he was not, he didn't appear on WWE television, WWF television for another month. And even when he did, he was a bit player, you know, funkadactyl, you know, dancing fool. You know, he was not a main event player. 
And it made all the sense in the world for it to be Triple H who had hired someone even to do yeah. it. It would, if you want to go willing to go the Rikishi route, you could have just said the Triple H paid him to do it. But instead, think, you just went with the I did it for the Rock. I think somewhere in the end they kind of alluded to that, but I don't think they ever really said there no. was Triple H that paid him to do it. No, they they, they didn't. Because Triple H is the one who leads Triple H in China or China, I think is the one who leads him out to the driveway for him to get run over. And, of course, that had to happen because Austin had to have neck surgery at the time, which kept him out of WrestleMania 2000. That's right. Yep. That's all that time. Yeah. Yep, because because the the main event of WrestleMania 2000 is the man of the McMahon in every corner. Yeah, where the – it ends up with Triple H and The Rock and Triple H wins. Because they all kind of screw him. Yeah, because, you know, Mick, that was the end of the Mick Foley Triple H feud and Rock and, and Rock and Big Show's feud from the botch finish at the Rumble. Yeah. And this has been your wrestling rewind moment of the night. Nice job bringing us back 21 years. Thank you again for reminding me about how old we are and also that that storytelling has stuck with me for that long. <laughs> but I mean I, I think when Feige says stuff like this we should we should take him into account and, and he doesn't say things lightly so I think that for him to be sending these kinds of signals tells me there's something up I I think it does lend to the fact that he he's probably seen you know the speculation and I mean it is kind of wild I don't know if it's I mean, I guess it's wilder than most of the speculation we've had for anything else. Him wanting to uh, like tamper that, I mean, I guess I, I, I see why. I see why he would want to say it. But there have been wild speculations before and nobody said anything. But I don't, so I don't know if it's I don't know if it's going to be the quite a letdown i really if those two to me it's only a letdown if one or both of those other two spider-men don't show up as long as they show up and those villains show up i think people will go along for whatever it is Uh, that's just how i feel about it it's just interesting to me is all about you know where we are in this and the thing is, like, people say, well, Foggy didn't say that same thing when people were going wild with speculation about Endgame, because their speculation was right. Foggy didn't have to deny the time travel element. He didn't have to deny that I, that someone was going to die at the end, like, because those things were going to happen. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, at the time, we didn't, we didn't know. So, I mean, maybe that does say some of the more outlandish speculations are not true. Indeed. So, Chad, let's talk about this week's box office uh, for the week of October the 31st, Halloween weekend. So let's talk about where our numbers lie. The top five movies at the box office. Dune, 3.9 million. Halloween Kills, 2.7 million. No Time to Die, 1.9 million. Let There Be Carnage, 1.5 million. And My Hero Academia, World Heroes Mission, 1.4 million. Not in the top five this week would include the movie Antlers, the movie Last Night in Soho, and the movie Ron's Gone Wrong. So your thoughts, sir, on our box office and Dune dropping a hearty 40%. And um, only averaging $959 per theater this week. Well, that's, I attribute that to the um, HBO Max effect. Uh, people that wanted to see it went out to see it in theaters the first weekend. And now most subsequent viewings are going to be done via the streaming service. That's not entirely surprising. Uh, even then, I mean, I was going to say even that the number is so low, but again, that's not surprising at all. It's 
people that were really excited went to see it in theaters. And everybody else is like, oh, that sounds good. I'll check it out on streaming. Um, as far as everything else, yeah. Uh, again, the, 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 the box office itself is low, but all of those movies, all the ones in the top five are not new. So the fact that they're still making this much and most of them are available streaming somewhere. That's, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing with Dune. Now, um, I know Last Night in Soho and the uh, What's Wrong with Ron, those are newcomers. Uh, Last Night in Soho is the, uh, the Edgar Wright movie. Uh, I've heard not so kind things about it. It's a smaller movie, so it was already not gonna make stuff, make a whole lot. I don't know if it's streaming or not. No. It's not? So, yeah. Sony this... release. It's not. Okay. So, this is just a, like, I knew about it, but I don't know how many people in the general public knew about it, and I really don't know how many people would be actually interested in it. Yeah, man. I mean, the movie hinges on a twist. It's set in Britain in, in modern day with flashbacks to a previous time. It is a movie that's dealing in very, very blatant terms about mass, toxic masculinity and human trafficking. Um, second movie this year to deal with both those topics in, the, in a big way. Um, it's got an interesting indie director. It just Those kind of things were not going to make huge splashes. Would you like to make more than a, you know, more than a, a you know, what, what the film ended up making this week? Uh, let's see. Um, last night in Soho made $960,000 this weekend for a, in 3,016 theaters for a per theater average of $318. Oh boy. The, uh, um, the French Dispatch, which is also another, you know, Wes Anderson film, uh, another niche indie director, um, $584,000 this weekend at, on 788 screens for a total per theater, per theater average of 741. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's people are pointing to you released both those the same weekend, yada, yada, but they didn't release in the same weekend in every theater. Um Last Night in Soho was not, it was not marketed as a horror movie. It was marketed as kind of a trippy movie, I guess I, you would say. Uh, uh, and I don't think that served the film well, because it really is a, a nice little Halloween treat. Like it does definitely have some spook to it. And there are definitely some good jump scares in there, just like there are with Shaun of the Dead and other things that he's done. Um, but it's a very Shyamalan type deal in that if the twist works for you at the end, it works for you and the whole movie works. If the twist at the end does not work for you, you have problem the, the rest of the film is problematic for you. So like I, I get that about the film and I get why critical praise was not effusive the way that most people thought it would be. But you know, I, I enjoyed the film and just you uh, like I enjoyed the ending, and that's that's what that's what how that whole thing went. I, I kind of I figured that's how you felt about it. It's with with that in mind, and um, it being a smaller film, I'm not surprised that I'm surprised it didn't make the top five. But I'm not surprised it didn't make a whole lot of money. It didn't seem like a movie that would make a lot of money in the best of circumstances, but. Yeah, this is Still. the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing where I get upset about people who bemoan and decry uh, Steve Jobs not doing better. It's like it's 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 an Aaron Sorkin movie that is set up like a play with Aaron Sorkin dialogue. That's not going to appeal to a mainstream audience. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like you know, that's what frustrated me so much about Collider. A spoiling a lot of the Marvel book stuff, and I'll get to that in a second. But B the headline on their review for Eternals being very much like, you know, um, you know, 
superhero friend, uh, superhero uh, uh, a broad, bold story constrained to the superhero genre, constrained by the superhero genre. And it's like, can we not please? Like you're just basically saying, oh, this poor cinematic mastermind was reduced down to doing her lowly superhero movie that she tried to be ambitious with but wasn't allowed to be ambitious because she still had to have a superhero fight at the end. It's like, again, three-act structure here, people. Conflict is always the resolution. Only so much you can do with that structure, you know. Um, But, like, yeah, can we just not? Can we just, like, okay, let her make her movie and don't sit there and say, well, if she'd have been allowed creative freedom, she was definitely allowed creative freedom. And it's going to be the most bold and different Marvel movie to date. While it's going to be exposition heavy, you can't argue that that film looks like a Chloe Zhao film. And you can get into a discussion about, as our good friend Nathan Velasquez does on his one five-minute film critic, about whether or not Chloe Zhao is a, a good filmmaker in terms of her color palette and her shot composition and her framing. You can have those film nerd discussions, but you can't argue just from the trailers alone, the way this movie looks, it looks different. Um, you know, so I just, I just wish people would be a little bit more open-minded with that, just not be like, the superhero genre is trapping these folks from preventing them from reaching their greatness. They're so ridiculous. So I am uh, in knee-deep into the Marvel book, and I have to retract a statement that I've made many, many times on this podcast over the years. Um, and I reached out to the uh, to the author herself to let her know this. Uh, I've said a lot on this podcast about this two-part book uh, that is very large and available now for $90 on Amazon um, was propaganda. That there was no way that they were <laughs> going to be truthful and honest and that it wasn't going to be a the bold, daring, and, and informational take uh, that we needed for such a momentous occasion as the MCU. Um, and I couldn't have been more wrong. They, they delve deep, and I mean deep, into every movie and every process. They hit chapters go by years. Um, they start with the beginning of Marvel Studios as a subsidiary of Marvel Entertainment Group and go all the way through to the end of, the, of Endgame. And they do so with clarity and writing and storytelling and plenty of pictures and firsthand accounts and open honesty about the challenges. Um, they don't shy away from talking about some of the things that didn't go right. Um, it, it's a really well put together tomb that is thorough and fair and honest and is definitely a must read for anybody who's a Marvel uh, MCU fan who's a Marvel Comics fan, but also who's just a movie fan. Because first, first and foremost, this, this writer, these co-writers are movie fans and they approach it from that way. And I enjoy the way that they, they put this timeline together and uh, the information that they're giving us. I just wish you know news outlets wouldn't have reported on it before people could get it off of a wait list. Uh, you know, they live for the clicks. Uh, I'm almost... Uh, kind of sad that you know, as soon as the book was re- announced I mean as soon as it was announced I went ahead and pre-ordered it and uh, like two weeks before it came out I was like wait Christmas is coming up why should I spend my money on a book that I want I can make other people do it so uh, it is one of like two things on my Christmas list so I have to wait I could now. do that but then I would be playing Russian roulette and I just didn't want to take that <laughs> chance. And also I was just tired of, of Collider spoiling the entire damn book for me. I just needed it in my veins now. Because the thing is you can take co- co- quotes completely out of context. You can reframe the way the author is writing the material. Like I wanted to see for myself how it was being written and framed. Yeah, it, like when they first started doing it, I, I would see, you know, Kevin Feige said this, Kevin Feige said that. I'm like, oh, and I read it. And I'm like, oh, this all came from the book. So after a while, I was just like, I'm just not going to read any of these. So I think I missed the last few. But the first 
the first few. I, well, and it's I easy to do right now because he's on a press junket, right? I mean, they got a movie coming out on Thursday. So you would be forgiven for thinking that any information was coming from the, the junket. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, now unless it says something like Eternals, I kind of just haven't read anything. So I've missed all that stuff. So I just got to wait like six weeks to get the book myself. Yeah, it's a, it's an impressive work for sure. A lot of time, a lot of energy. They hired they hired the writers in 2017. And so they were embedded with the studio from 2017 on and were there for the movie making process of a lot of the back half of, of phase three. And, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I also kind of wish that the clickbaity, like the Russo brothers almost walked off the set of Civil War. Like, I, I wish those kind of clickbaity things weren't there, weren't the thing everybody wants to talk about because there's a lot of good stuff, solid stuff in there. There's also a lot of good, solid stuff in the details about how that whole thing went down that get missed when it's just headline. Yeah. Women's shot in uh, the female hero shot in Endgame was reworked to be less pandering. And like, you know, the first of all, that was said on the press junket that they re it was a reshoot and that they had fixed it a couple of different times and they'd asked themselves that question. So it really wasn't news, but a news site decides that it is news and they can generate clicks for their website. And so they put it up. And it just, you know, it, it doesn't do anything. For anybody really yeah i'm i'm looking forward to it now uh even more so now so i'm glad you brought that up yeah so what time is your screening tomorrow uh thursday night chad i believe it's at six mine is at six as well so that means we'll both be on track to be back here thursday night reviewing eternals uh, the way that we have every Marvel Cinematic Universe film since Ant-Man in 2015. So be on the lookout for that spoiler cast coming your way next, later in the week. Um, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tigerfan. And I'm at The Mesh Theory. Thank you very much. And all hail Mark Sanchez, greatest living American and USC All-American quarterback. Oh, boy. Thank you very much and have a pleasant evening. I'm all right. How are you doing? Uh, better than I was last night, but still not great. Uh, when's your day off? Uh, Sunday. Wow, did you have to think about that? Yeah, next Sunday, like this upcoming Sunday. Yes, yeah, Saturday, Saturday night of Halloween weekend was. <laughs> I saw the sun come up for the wrong reasons. So, <laughs> um, your thoughts are on Miles Brennan entering the transfer portal when we don't know who the coach is going to be and. Everything's in free for all around that around the team right now. Well, uh, my brother asked me the same thing earlier, and um, I think for for I mean, Miles has been here as long as Ogeron has officially been the coach. So, uh, what five years already? He still got what at least two left. Uh, so. I mean, he could have he could have stuck around, no, not knowing who the coach was, and and see if he had a chance to maybe start. And I mean, I I think he could beat out Ma, uh, Max. Hell, I pretty much think he could have beat him out this year, but it's not certain. And he's got two years left, so he's so at this point he's already what twenty, probably twenty three, and. Why you can either take the chance to stay and and hope that you end up being the starter, or you can transfer and go somewhere and know you're pretty much going to be the starter for at least a year. Uh, try to get try to get some good tape and then go to NFL. So I can't really fault him 
for that. Um, I do. I wish he would have said yes. Uh, had he not got injured this year, I mean, I know the O line is crap, but there's. I really can't see a way where he doesn't at least become the starter at some point. But that's not what happened, and I can't blame him for for heading out. Uh, now, where does that leave LSU? Good question. We really won't know until we get a coach. So we got a whole month of what the hell is going to happen. Yeah, it, they could have done a lot of us a favor and made this an 11 a.m. ass kicking instead of a 6 p.m. ass kicking. Would have helped everybody's day go by faster. This is the only time I've heard so many LSU people like, like bemoan the fact that it's a 6 o'clock game. And I completely agree. Let's get this shit over with. Nobody got time for this. I don't have to wait all day to see this massacre. 28-point dogs on the road. It's always a fun time. <laughs> At least we've got ULM on the schedule still. We're good. I mean, yeah, that gets us to five. We still don't get to six. We still got to beat Arkansas or uh, A&M. I really hope we beat A&M. I would like to beat A&M. Um, I'm personally still disappointed that we're sitting at, at this many wins because we should have one fewer win because the Florida Gators – should not have thrown in five interceptions <laughs> and should have at least played defense on one drive. That would have been helpful. I mean. And it would have also been helpful to the administration if he'd have been fired after a loss instead of a win. Uh, I mean, the only thing that might change is that they, what, that they don't keep him for the, uh, for his interim. Well, no, that, that was, that was set in stone. So that, I don't think that was set in stone by the fact that you didn't have a actual legitimate um, uh, replacement, you know, head coach, an interim head coach on the on the team. It's easier for how how more um, how Hunter to do that, uh, you know, for one game against Arkansas for four days. It's another thing when you're asking somebody to do it for six, seven weeks. Um, and you know, I love Kevin Falk, but. There's a little bit of a difference between uh, coaching Karen Crow High and in coaching LSU. Uh, well, uh, I mean, if that so, if that's the case, it to me, it really didn't matter if they fired him after a win or a loss. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of goodwill for O after that, but it's completely disappeared from everything I've seen uh, after. After that Ole Miss showing, uh, the press conference today didn't do him any favors. So uh, I think the goodwill he had after Florida is going to keep deteriorating uh, unless he can beat one or two of the, the last remaining SEC, SEC schools. Yeah. Um, so I will pose the, the question that I tried to, you know, uh, the question I didn't spell right on Twitter, uh, bigger what if in the history of LSU football, Cecil Collins or uh, Miles Brent? So. And it only appeals to us, like people of a certain age, because only people of a certain age are going to even know who Cecil is. I mean, I know who he is. Uh, and it will be people, you know, my age. We're really from like your age. Well, probably not so much age, but you're different. Uh, but my age and older, the thing about me is, you know, I didn't give a shit about sports until I was in college. So while I know who Cecil is, uh, I think this had, I think Cecil was like the 95 season. So 95. So yeah, I was just getting to 90, 96, 97. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was one of the Donardo years. Him and Kevin Falk shared the backfield. And he played for three games. And one of them was a game against Auburn where he ran for like 200 yards and set the school record at the time. And everybody was hyped because you had, you know, there were actual conversations in this city at that point in time about whether Kevin Falk or Cecil Collins was the better running back. And then, you know, Cecil got injured up in Vandy on that horrible turf and then proceeded <laughs> to give in to his proclivities of, peeping on women and stealing things so yeah um i'm trying to figure out it must have been it must have been 96 uh 
but yeah, I was so I was in high school and I did not care at all. But I I know the fact that I know the legend of Cecil Collins uh, all these years later. I'm going to. I think people of my age would probably say it's going to be Cecil, uh, even though shorter sample size. But again, his legend looms large. I don't know if we'll be talking about Miles Brennan almost 30 years later as a, uh, a what if. And I think part of that is because his time to shine came in what was probably going to be the two worst years of LSU football in, in the, the golden era. Uh, it might be the end of the golden era. So, I mean, at least Donardo had the, Donardo had like somewhat of an uptick. This is straight down. So he only yeah, played, Gen- he only Gennaro's, played. Yeah, Donardo's downfall can be tied to, you know, the Lou Tepper defense and, and all of those things. But like the bring back the magic thing in 95 was real. The Peach Bowl, the excitement over the Peach Bowl in 96 was very real. Two Independence Bowls and a Peach Bowl in three years after not going to a bowl game for six years um, and having a losing record for six straight years um, is a kind of losing that a generation here does not know. Um, And, you know, that was real in a very tangible way. I think with Miles, it'll just always be, you know, the same kind of thing for that it is for me with uh, with Ryan Paraloo. What happens to Les Miles's legacy and what happens to the LSU football program if Ryan Paraloo can keep himself out of trouble? You don't. You you never start Jordan Jefferson or Jared Lee early. Hatch never sees the field. They're coming off a national championship. They rebuild the program. Like there's like that's the way I think of Ryan Paraloo almost twenty years later. And I think that's probably the same thing I'm going to think of with Miles Brennan. Miles Brennan was supposed to be the guy that succeeded Joe Burrow. He was the guy in the meeting rooms with Joe Burrow. He was going to be the next guy, and just he could never stay healthy enough to do it. Yeah, I and think the, so. And the sample size we have shows that he could have done it. Yeah, I mean, it, yes, I do believe you that that's um, I do believe that he could have done it. Uh, the sample size thing, because <laughs> like okay, so if we take, if we take um, the first, if we go by the first three starts of miles, it says you can make it. But by the same token, if you take the first three starts of uh, Max. of Max, uh, he's got hell. He's got more wins. And he still threw what three touchdowns in each one of those games, so it would tell you the same thing. And here we sit, um, what eight weeks into the season, and I'm here to tell you that I don't, I don't think Max is it. So I don't know if the sample size is large enough to say that he could have made it, but it's it's large enough to to make you question it. But I think if we're talking about quarterbacks, the bigger what it is Ryan Paraloo, even though his sample size is arguably less. Indeed. And five, four, three, two, one.